This morning, I would like to uh, draw your attention to Revelation chapter 6 and Revelation chapter 13 as we begin our, our prophecy update for the year 2019. I, I can say uh, confidently and emphatically that uh, uh, this is just a first uh, of uh, what I would hope is only two parts, but it could be more, uh, because so much has happened over the last year, and uh, so much was happening entering into the year 2019 uh, as, as pertaining to uh, prophetic issues that... Uh, there really is a lot to to talk about, and uh, but I I, I really uh, actually be, before you turn there, well no you're you're there now stay at Revelation, but I, I was I was looking at something this morning in in the book of Isaiah, uh, and I'm going to read it to you because it it uh, it just seems to uh, more than ever point out the uh, situation that uh, that we find ourselves in as the body of Christ in the year 2019, as we're awaiting the coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, and, and it's a familiar verse, but we oftentimes only read that one verse and not realize that there's some, some richness to the next couple of verses. And that's Isaiah 5, verse 20. And I'm going to read that one to you, and most of you are familiar with this verse that says, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. We see that in our culture and in our society today, but sadly, we see that in the church. But now, if you read on, it goes on to say, woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes. That's another problem that is not only a, a, a spiritual problem, it's also a cultural, uh, uh, systematic, uh, uh, social, and, and political problem. That woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. And then it goes on and says, woe unto them that are mighty to drink and men of strength to, to mingle strong drink. And notice this, verse 23, which justify the wicked for reward. Think about that. And take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. That's the battle that the church is facing in the year 2019. And if we don't wake up, it's going to swallow up a lot of professing Christians who don't trust in the word of God as, as they should. And the reason why we emphasize the teaching of the word of God as often as we do and do so uh, and practice that is because we realize that the Lord has told us from the very beginning that we need to be ready and we need to be discerning as God's people. So in Revelation chapter 6, and I, I, I begin with this passage uh, because it kind of sets the stage for what we are seeing happening in, in, in our world today. It's not quite there, but it's almost there. It says in Revelation 6, and, and by the way, let, let me just kind of uh, put it in, in, in cr uh, chronological perspective, but the book of Revelation begins, of course, in chapters 1, uh, introducing the fact that there's going to be a revelation of Jesus Christ and that uh, there's a blessing that comes to those who read this particular uh, 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 prophecy. But then chapters 2 and 3 deal with the church 
There was the letters, uh, seven letters to the churches in Asia Minor. All of those churches represent some, some aspect of the church throughout the ages. Up until the last days when the, the next to the last church, the Church of Philadelphia, would be the church that is the church of the true believer. And then comes the Laodicean church, which is the, the lukewarm church, where, it, where we are today. Because the majority of, of what is called the church today is pretty lukewarm. Then you move into chapter 4, which gives us a, a preview of the rapture of the church in that John is called up into heaven. And then chapters 4 and 5 deal with heaven. It, deal with, it deals with Jesus being the one who sits at the, at the right hand of the throne of God, who breaks open the seals. That begins now what is going to be called the day of the Lord, which is what we're studying, by the way. This is a commercial studying on Wednesday night in the book of Joel. So uh, the theme is the day of the Lord, and we are getting close to it. We need to understand it. So I invite you to come and be with us. <clears throat> but chapter 6 is kind of the prelude to that. And it says, And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him. And he went forth conquering and to conquer. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red. And power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth. And that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse. And he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny. And see, thou hurt not the oil and the wine. When he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And his name that sat on him was Death. And hell, or Hades, followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword, and with hunger, and with death, and with the beasts of the earth. To understand a little bit more about the person sitting on the white horse, we read in Revelation 13, verse 5, about the one who was going to be called the beast that we know as the Antichrist. And it says, And there was given unto him a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. And power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God, to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. 
And we will be coming back to all of that, hopefully within the next couple of, of weeks that we're dealing with these prophetic uh, updates. But at the onset of this past Wednesday study in the prophecy of Joel, I, I shared a, a major concern I have with, with the lack of solid biblical teaching in the Church of Jesus Christ today pertaining to the prophecies of the last days and and I gave a, a short list of reasons why this is so. And one reason that I gave had to do with the fact that in the latter days, not many people will be expecting Jesus to come. Now, obviously, not many people who are unbelievers will be expecting Jesus to come because they're not looking for Jesus. They don't care about Jesus. They don't know Jesus. That's understood. But the fact is that there will be a lot of people that will not be expecting Jesus to come that should know that he's coming. Whether it be at the time of the rapture of the church, before the great tribulation period of seven years, or at his second coming, which is after the seven-year tribulation. They're not expecting Jesus to come. And we know this because the Lord referred to himself as coming as a thief in the night. And it is in Matthew 24 where he refers to that, but he then exhorted his disciples that they were to be ready. He said, for in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man cometh. Matthew 24, verse 44. For in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man cometh. And there are going to be a lot of so, uh, professing believers that are going to be caught off guard when Jesus comes. And they're going to wish that they had known what was going on. Because I can tell you right now, the last days is serious business. It's serious business with Jesus. It should be serious business with us. And it should concern us all as believers in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that those who profess some faith in God or in Christ or call themselves Christians have very little knowledge, if any, as to his promises to return for his church, what we call the rapture of the church. And I'll speak of that much more later. They have very little knowledge of the conditions of the world as a whole before his return to settle accounts with peoples and kingdoms pertaining to their knowledge and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, and let me just interject here that, you know, a lot of people can know a lot about what's going on politically in the world and you can take sides on it if you want, but that's not what's more important than the things that the Bible says about Jesus' return. And then, of course, there are those who have very little knowledge of the fact that his return is going to establish his millennial kingdom on the earth in the city of Zion, in the city of Jerusalem itself. Jerusalem is not a metaphor. I've been there. It exists. How many of you have been there? It exists, doesn't it? And sadly, not only will there be those ignorant of these promises, but there will be many detractors and critics in the church mocking those who believe in the promises of Scripture concerning the rapture of the church and the return of Jesus Christ at the second coming. Because they proclaim that all biblical prophecies has already been fulfilled. By the way, that is, that is called preterism. That, that is the, uh, uh, the teaching of, of um, 
and of saying that all prophecy has already been fulfilled. All biblical prophecy has, has already come to pass. Really? The reason that I've chosen to begin this study today with the words of Revelation 6 and Revelation 13 is to prove that these prophecies could not have already been fulfilled. But in fact, according to much of what we will cover today, it can and will be fulfilled in the very near future. And it would do us well to read the first verse of the book of Revelation. Revelation 1 verse 1. We're just going to read that one verse for just a minute so you can see something. It says in verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him. By the way, this is not the revelation of John, the divine, as some Bibles say. Or the revelation of, of John the Apostle, or, or whomever. It says the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is the revealing of Jesus Christ. And that which is being revealed according to what is going to happen at the very end. Which God gave unto him. To show, and here it is, this is what I want you to see. To show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. Now the preterist will say, well you see, shortly come to pass means that right after John has been given this, all of these things are going to be fulfilled. <clears throat> okay, well, <clears throat> let's remember a few things. Remember that to the Lord, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. And that there are servants of the Lord reading these words Right here and right now, nearly 2,000 years later. How many of you are a servant of the Lord today? Well, let's see. Oh, that's, that's pretty good. Better hands than last night. I think I caught them off guard. How many of you are servants of the Lord? Hey, honey, am I a servant of the Lord? Hey, are, are you a follower of Christ? Raise your hand and be thankful of it. All right, praise the Lord. See, you're servants of the Lord, right? Okay, well, the text says to show his servants things which must come to pass shortly. Well, it then becomes quite significant that these prophecies are much closer now to coming to pass than ever before. We're still servants, and the end has not yet come. So there are still prophecies that need to be fulfilled. Let's begin with prophecies like Revelation 6, verses 1 and 2, where it says, And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals. Now, who, the, who is the Lamb? Jesus Christ. The Lamb is the one who opens the seals. He's the one that commences what happens in the end times. Jesus knows exactly what's happening today. He knows exactly what is going to happen tomorrow before we know it. And he says, and I heard, John says, I heard, as it were, the, the noise of thunder. One of the four beasts say, come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat on him had a bow. And a crown was given unto him. And he went forth conquering and to conquer. This is kind of the prelude to the revealing of Antichrist. As I mentioned, it is Jesus, the Lamb of God, that commences the segment of time known as the Day of the Lord. Therefore, that's the first uh, clue that the person on the horse is not Jesus. And then he commences the segment of time known as the Day of the Lord. We'll get to that in a moment. Uh, but as a matter of fact, that's what we're studying in, on Wednesday night. One more commercial. 
uh, about the day of the Lord, and we're going we're gonna to expand our understanding of what the day of the Lord means. It is not a day of light. It is a day of darkness. It is a day of destruction. It is a day of gloom. There's a lot of things that we need to understand. So we're dealing with the seven-year period known as uh, the, the tribulation period. It's also called the day of the Lord. It is that seven-year period that pertains to those last portions of judgments to conclude Israel's chastisement as outlined in, in, in Daniel chapter 9, but it is also the time period that the Antichrist is revealed and judgments will abound globally in that seven-year period, bringing what is called the consummation of the ages or the end of the ages or the end of the world to a close and ushers in then the millennial kingdom or the thousand-year reign of Christ, okay? Well, that's a, that was a long sentence and took three breaths for me to say all of that. But this prophecy in chapter 6, which is usually designated as the prophecy of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, can be considered really as prophecy 101. Those of you who have ever been to college know that uh, 101 is kind of like a basic course. This is prophecy 101, and we need to know this, and we need to review it if we know it already, but we need to review the very basics of prophecy as we look to the day of Christ, which is very close in coming. And it is in respect to understanding that in the last days, deception will be at the very center of Satan's plan. Deception will be at the very center of Satan's plan to confuse, to conceal, and to corrupt. That is what, a Satan, that is, what Satan is doing right now. Look at how confused our world is. Look at how confused our country is. We talk about the concealment of Satan. Think about this for just a second. Just, just think about this. I have talked about, and, and others have talked about, this uh, entity called the deep state that's kind of being uh, manipulated by people of a previous administration and and people who are, are in, the, in the background trying to destroy the present administration here in this country. I will always go on to say there's a deeper state. It's found in Ephesians chapter 6. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness and spiritual wickednesses in high places. Do you, do you know that uh, Satan has accomplished that in the United States, he's gotten us wrestling against flesh and blood, but not against the principalities that are causing all of this. Christians, let's wake up. Let's wake up. Deception is at the core of Satan's plan. Deception is at the inception of this prophecy in that the white horse is usually associated with uh, not by many, but, but there's enough people that consider that the white horse still is associated with a victorious Messiah in Revelation 19. That is far from the truth, folks. Look at the context of where we are. A white horse with a rider on it that has a bow. But what is significant about that? No arrows. You see the symbolism here yet? Well, it's coming. Because the problem that 
is that the one sitting on the white horse has a bow but no arrow. Simply, that is to symbolize the attainment of peace. White is sometimes a symbol of peace. And so it is the attainment of peace without conflict. In other words, solving the world's problems diplomatically, as it were, with words instead of war. Yet, there is a bow in his hand. A symbol of war. What happens in the next uh, frame? The next frame is a horse that is red symbolizing war. There's a progression that we need to awaken to. So the white horse has got someone who is going to make covenants with people. Someone that people want to come and, 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 to, and, and to establish peace because the world is, is, is just so, so insane right now. Everybody's got buttons to press and when we press the buttons, everything goes boom and blows up. Scripture describes the Antichrist as one who speaks with great swelling words. Promoting himself more than anything. But he's going to speak with words during a time of great global desperation for peace. And the Jewish people want peace. Israel today wants peace because they have so many enemies that want to destroy them. So, in effect, they'll look to anyone that's going to bring peace to them. Read Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. In fact, verse 27 speaks of that covenant, which, by the way, is a false covenant. And then I'll kind of close that thought out in just a minute for you. But it's no coincidence, as the scripture makes clear, the future scenario here. If you go to Daniel chapter 7, and you'll, you'll read it here, but I want you to see it in your own Bibles, Daniel chapter 7, verses 19 through 21, consider again what is being said about this one person that is going to be sitting on that white horse that is going to be revealed then as the one who speaks peace at first. It says, then I would know the truth of the fourth beast, Daniel says, which was diverse from all the others, exceeding dreadful, whose teeth were of iron and his nails of brass, which devoured, break in pieces, and stamped the residue with his feet, and of the ten horns that were in his head, and of the other which came up, and before whom three fell, that would be that one horn, speaking of the Antichrist, even of that horn that had eyes, and notice this, a mouth that spake very great things. A mouth that speaks very great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows. I beheld and noticed the same horn, horn made war with the saints. So it's one person who's going to come and, 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 and preach the, 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 the secular line that is out there today, which is we need to be tolerant of everybody. We need to be tolerant of everybody. And then in parentheses, except for the Christian. Tolerant of every idea except for Christianity. Tolerant of every idea but except for the God of, of, of the Bible. Uh, every idea, we've got to be tolerant except for the Bible itself. Do you, do you see the problem? That's the way it is right now. And it's getting more and more like that in this country today. If you go to Daniel chapter 8, verses 23 and 25, or 23 through 25, it says, And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, we're getting close to the end. In other words, a king of fierce countenance, 
One who began with great swelling words is now one of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences. That's your, that's your deep state and your deeper state. The understanding of dark sentences brings to mind the fact that there are groups such as, you know, that began hundreds and hundreds of years ago, like the Rosicrucians and the, and, and, and the Freemasons and all. You know, if you're involved in masonry or Freemasonry or any of those oh, levels of, of masonry, I'd get out. And you should know better. Because they do not honor the God of the Bible or the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They may mention him from time to time. Oh, they do good things, you know, like the Shriners. The Shriners do good things, you know, for kids and all of that. But is that what it's all about? They meet in secret, dark places. They keep secrets. The Bible says we don't keep secrets. If you begin to understand how the, the, the city of Washington, D.C. was designed by Freemasons, it'll shock you. That's the deep state right now. And the only thing that can be connected to anything that is deep and dark is the devil himself. And then it goes on in verse 24 and it says, And his power shall be mighty, but not his own, by his own power. Where does his strength come from? The enemy himself. And he shall destroy wonderfully. Now, that's, that's, that's an old King James word. It doesn't always mean wonderfully. <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, you might go out and have a, a nice uh, double cheeseburger today and say, well, oh, that was wonderful, you know. But you weren't filled with wonder. You were just hungry. Yeah. There, there's a wonder that we have to what's going on. You see, that, that's how the word would have been interpreted then. He destroys with, you know, it, it fills us with wonder how he can do that. And shall prosper in practice. And notice this. And please take note of this. Highlight this. And shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. Again, destroying that which God has raised up. But not, not only that, there's another place. It says, and through his policy also. See, policy means that he's political. Also, he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand. And he shall magnify himself in his heart. And here's the other part to, magna, to, uh, to, uh, uh, to mark down. And by peace shall destroy many. That's deception. By peace shall destroy many. The word peace is connected to the word shalom, but it is not the word shalom. It is the word shalva. Shalva. Now listen to what it is. Shalva means prosperity and security. Sound familiar? Peace and safety. We'll come back to that in a moment. But notice he has become so arrogant that the next phrase, he shall also stand up against the prince of princes. He's going to stand up against Jesus, who is the Messiah of Israel who will come to defend Israel. I tell you what, anybody want to, want to go up against the prince of princes? Not me. I want to be on his side. I don't want to be against him. But he shall be broken without hand. Now, this issue of peace and safety, go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Okay, we're getting through Prophecy 101 here so we can get back to our topic. 
But 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 3, a classic prophetic passage by the Apostle Paul. But of the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. See, Paul taught this church. This is a young church. You know, some people today say, you know, we don't want to teach anybody you know, anything about prophecy right now. Too early. It's too early. Let's, let's teach them about just, the, just about the love of God, just about the love of Christ, and being nice to your neighbor, and blah, 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 this and that. Paul said, listen, they were expecting Jesus to come then. You better know the signs of the times and the times of the signs. So he taught a very young church about prophecy. So he said to them, but of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord, there it is, so cometh as a thief in the night. What does that mean? It comes when no one's expecting it. The only ones that should be expecting it are the believers in Jesus Christ who are supposed to know and they're supposed to discern the signs of the times. And then he says, for when they shall say, peace and safety. Let me ask you a question. When shall they say it? They say it when they think they have it. That goes back to Daniel chapter 9 verse 27. And the covenant that was made by this Antichrist with Israel. And at the beginning of the seven year period they're saying, here's the guy on the white horse. Don't forget that it finished off saying conquering and to conquer. He's just getting started. And they crying peace and safety. But then notice what Paul says. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them. As travail upon a woman with child. And they shall not escape. The very middle of that seven year period, the Antichrist declares himself God in the temple. And we know what happens next. And so obviously, precisely, and progressively, what follows in Revelation chapter 6, from the deception of the Antichrist, or the false Christ, because that's what he is, he's a false Christ, he's a false Messiah. The next thing is the red horse. World war on a scale that has never been experienced. Deception leads to destruction. And greater destruction the world has ever seen. Is that possible in our day and time? Yeah. What did I say earlier? Some people got a button. They're going to press a button. And who's going to stop it? But Vladimir Putin today is boasting of a hyper... Uh, 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 missile. It's, it's, it's one that, that radar cannot detect. And they say they have it already. I, I should have written down the name of it. It's all right. There's still another week going. Unless the Lord comes today and then we go home and we're safe. Okay. All right. So the red horse, the world war, uh, brings destruction. The black horse, you know, follow progressively. The black horse, after great destruction and war, famine, pestilence, and economic disaster, while at the very same time, folks, the riches of the elite wealthy remain untouched. So... Deception leads to destruction, and the destruction leads to depletion. Depleting of all resources for the people that need them, but the rich remain rich. 
And then from the depletion, of course, comes the pale horse, which means death. And by the way, he's not unaccompanied. He has someone who follows him. It's Hades, death and hell, we're told. Deception, destruction, depletion, and death. And to better grasp the need to understand the events of the last days before the return of Jesus Christ, what we at times will call the day of Christ, which is different from the day of the Lord. The day of Christ is the day that he has spoken of that he will come. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. He tells his disciples, I'll come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you will be also. Paul calls it the, uh, the snatching away, the harpazo, the snatching away the church. We have to consider one of the great events that is closely reaching its time of fulfillment. And that is the Ezekiel 38 war. Now to every serious student of prophecy, this event matters a whole lot. And it should. And it should matter to us as well. And just recently, well within the last year or so, uh, we, uh, we actually finished uh, our, our study in the, in, in the book of Ezekiel. It was quite a long study, but... But uh, we spent a good amount of time in Ezekiel 38, and I would encourage you to go back to those uh, on, on the website. You can go back and hear some of those uh, studies because it's important. I can only give you so much here. But in Ezekiel 38, verses 1 through 6, let me read this, because what we're going to establish now, we're, we, we just moved to Prophecy 102, uh, moving along. Uh, is, is, uh, or maybe it's 201, right? It depends on what school you go to. But... Whatever it is, I mean, uh, Ezekiel 38 verses 1 through 6 is going to now show us the players of this preparation for this, this particular war that are here on the earth right now. They are named right here. The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face against Gog. Gog is a person, the leader. Some have said, well, Gog quite possibly could be Putin. Well, that's, that's right. It could be Rudin, Tutin, Putin. I said that just to make sure that you all are listening and paying attention. So the son of man, he says, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog. And then the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. Chief prince, broken down in, in the Hebrew, is more to say the prince of Rosh. R-O-S-H. Rosh means chief or first. For example, Rosh Hashanah in the Hebrew, of course, is the first, uh, is, is a new year. That's, that's the, the, the uh, Jewish new year is Rosh Hashanah, the chief, the first uh, of, the, of that year. Uh, but here he is the, the prince of Rosh of Meshech and Tubal, which are in that particular region and vicinity. And then it says, and prophesy against him. Notice, against him, a person. And say, thus saith the Lord God, behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, or the prince of Rosh, Meshech and Tubal, and I will turn thee back and put hooks into thy jaws. Now, the picture here is very interesting because he's saying the way that you have treated, because back in the days of Ezekiel, when, they, uh, when nations would uh, take captive uh, slaves from other countries, they would actually hook them in their jaws 
and tie them all together, and this is how they marched single file into their captivity, like a, like a big string of fish. And he says, I will turn thee back and put hooks into thy jaws, and I will bring thee forth in all thine army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed with all sorts of armor, even a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. That's all I'm going to do to you. And then he says, Persia, Ethiopia, Libya, with them. All of them with shield and helmet. Then he mentions Gomer and all his bands, and the house of Tagarma, the north quarters, and all of his bands, and many people with thee. Did you recognize any of these names? I hope you did. Some of them exist today. The nations in this passage of scripture, to save us some time, is Russia. Rosh, Meshech, Tubal are considered to be in that region that is north of Israel, of course, and in the areas of, of, the, um, of what is today modern-day modern Russia. But Russia will be also along, uh, will be joined along with, the, with what is called the stands. You know what the stands are? Uh, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, Turkmenistan, uh, Tajikistan, just to name a few. Uh, those are nations that actually were at one time a part of the Soviet Union. Uh, but when uh, Russia went into more of a, a, a confederacy, the, they became... Uh, independent nations, but they are part of the confederacy still of Russia. So it just doesn't have the, the, the Soviet tag on it, but many of them are still the same way. Uh, then there's Persia. We all should know that Persia is modern-day Iran. I-R-A-N, Iran. Uh, enemies of Israel and enemies of the United States. Iran, the leaders of Iran have called the United States the great Satan and, and Israel the, the little Satan. That is who Persia is. And then there is Ethiopia, which is more Sudan, but it includes parts of Ethiopia as well. So Sudan and Ethiopia. And then there's Libya that was once called Put. Libya was the nation that was led by Muammar Gaddafi until his assassination. And then there is Turkey. We know Turkey to be in the region of what is called Gomer and Togarma. Uh, Asia Minor, uh, uh, countries north again of Israel. And uh, all of these countries mentioned here in Ezekiel 38 are all presently allied together. They are all presently allied together. And by the way, that is no coincidence. Because according to, uh, let's, let's go to one source called Gulf, gulfnews.com, Russia was reportedly moving troops into Libya recently. And as British intelligence informed Prime Minister Theresa May, they told her that Russian President Vladimir Putin wanted to make Libya his new Syria. What does that tell you? Look at the shambles that Syria is in today. We'll talk about Syria more in just a minute. One thing that is no surprise to anyone who stays informed with the situation worldwide is that Putin and Russia are in dire need of resources. Yes, they do have a lot of resources, and yes, they do have a lot of weapons, and yes, they do have, you know, these hypersonic uh, missiles now that they say uh, can, uh, can destroy much of the world without any, any, anyone knowing that they're coming. But nonetheless, they still want all the reserves that they can get, uh, in oil especially, 
natural gas, and certainly uh, in, uh, in other types of resources, whether it be food sources and whatnot. So here's a, here's a hint for us. This is why Israel is their ultimate target. Israel is their ultimate target because today, God has made them one of the most prosperous nations in the world. They still do have their problems. Please understand that, uh, you know, they're just like any other country in the, se- in the sense that they have a lot of people that are poor, a lot of people that, that do need help, and they do try to help as many as they can. But nonetheless, as far as, as, as uh, uh, economic and, and, and uh, uh, technology and, and uh, in medicine and in other uh, uh, areas, Israel ranks at the top of many of these uh, uh, areas. But they also have oil. And by the way, more than that, they're one of the leading providers of natural gas. And Russia wants that resource. Is it any reason? I mean, doesn't it make sense that they are allied with all of the enemies of Israel? And you'll see how that works in just a moment. MiddleEastMonitor.com reported recently that Russia and Sudan are seeking to develop a working military cooperation. Russia and Sudan. Sudan is primarily socialistic, Islamic religiously, but actually was Islamic politically. We have a dear friend who's been with us, uh, Wes Bentley, who uh, actually uh, uh, trains the chaplains for the, the rebel army against the, that, uh, uh, the ones that are kind of overseeing the, the, the present government right now. And they're in, a, they're in a civil war. It's a great civil war. Many of his chaplains, as well as the soldiers in that rebel army, have, have been killed but they've come to Christ, and you know, that's, that's, a, uh, that's a very important aspect of, of his ministry. Um, the Sudanese government, headquartered in their capital, Khartoum, desires to enhance Russian investments in their country, and I quote, and here's the reason, especially in the gold, oil, and gas fields, and to use the income to fund the modernization of its army's weapons. So Sudan is going to get a blessing out of it because they say, well, if, if, uh, if Russia wants to pay us for gold and for natural gas and for uh, oil, then, then it'll help us, you see. So one person scratches one back and the other scratches their backs. You know. It's all about back scratching. Now let's turn to Russia and Ethiopia because these are mentioned here as well in Ezekiel 38. And these two nations have entered into an agreement uh, to develop nuclear energy collaboratively, as reported by allafrica.com. Ethiopia has recently resumed daily flights to Moscow. So we're not, we're not enemies anymore, so we'll, you know, we'll open up uh, some trade and, and, uh, and visits. You guys can come here, we'll go over there, okay? Then I want to take a look at Yemen for now. Uh, I was going to mention Yemen as, as part of this alliance, but it... it it isn't really yet, if at all, but it's an important aspect of what we understand, uh, how we'll understand how Russia has, has hooks in all of these smaller countries. Because uh, Russia has supported what is called a proxy war that Iran has had with Yemen. Yemen is a little uh, nation right at the very bottom of, of Saudi Arabia. And uh, Iran has had a, a, this war with Yemen by 
uh, uh, Russia supported this particular proxy war. In other words, Iran is really fighting the, the battle for Russia. That's what a proxy war is. We're kind of involved in it too, and I'll mention that in a moment. But Russia supported this proxy war that Iran has had with Yemen by vetoing a resolution at the United Nations Security Council that would have held Iran accountable for what they're doing in Yemen. For that proxy war, uh, the USA, by the way, supports the Saudi interests in Yemen while Russia supports Iran. So there's a little bit of proxy there too. Uh, but the simple example of a proxy war is that Russia wants what Yemen has in resources. And again, again it comes down to the oil and the gas and, and, and whatnot. So this is how the connections are made between Russia and Sudan and Ethiopia and Iran. And by the way, Turkey. Because time doesn't permit us to go into any great detail concerning Turkey, but the next time, we're going to talk a little bit more about it. But as the story goes, Turkey, Russia, and Iran are the major players in what is happening in the Middle East today when you consider the ties to all the conflicts that are taking place in Syria. In Syria. Now, we all know that just a few weeks ago, President Trump had mentioned that we were going to pull out of Syria. Now, we haven't done that yet. But uh, that uh, kind of stirred a lot of, uh, a lot of political dust in, in the air. Uh, by the way, I, I, I need to mention that there's another summit that is planned for the leaders of Russia, Turkey, and Iran. Uh, they do this uh, practically every year. So they, you know, these are buddies. These are nations that, you know, somehow we, we think, well, we, we fight uh, ISIS in the Middle East and Russia is supposed to be on our side, but they're supporting more of all the enemies of Israel as well as enemies of the United States. Iran, as I said, is one of the greater enemies of the United States. But nonetheless, they're buddies and they'll, they'll meet again in early 2019. That is Putin and uh, Erdogan and uh, uh, Rahmani from uh, Iran. But the news of, the news of uh, that withdrawal, as I mentioned, has caused some shockwaves politically in our own country, especially but also as this upcoming move affects our support and protection of Israel, the enemy of Iran and Turkey, and especially Russia. Now some would say, well, they're not quite uh, enemies. Uh, they're enemies, but they, they still do a little talking. I know that uh, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu has had visits to Russia and, 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 and has met with Putin, but that doesn't mean that just because they talk that they're, they're friends. Turkey, for the longest time, was friendly with Israel, but they're not as friendly anymore. You see, things are changing. The climate politically in the world is changing. And I want to talk a lot about globalism the next time. I wanted to do it today, but I, we had to go through class, you know, Prophecy 101 and, and 201. Okay, we're almost done with 201. We're almost to 301. So what we need to understand is uh, this move with, with Syria, and I want to talk a little bit more about that later, uh, it affects our support and protection of Israel. It affects our support and protection of Israel, the enemy of Iran, Turkey, and especially Russia, according to Ezekiel 38. And I want you to remember something. Go back to Ezekiel 38 and look at verse 13. For all that is said about this particular war, that God is going to actually stand with Israel in protection and, 
it isn't the U.S. that's going to do it. And the reason we know that, and other countries, especially Saudi Arabia, who, by the way, is also having a, uh, uh, agreements with Israel now. Saudi Arabia, for the longest time, they didn't want to have anything to do with Israel. Now they do, which is interesting, and we're going to see that here. In Ezekiel 38, verse 13, it says, Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish, with all the young lions thereof, shall say unto thee, to, to Gog, art thou come to take a spoil? Hast thou gathered thy company to take a prey? To carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, to take a great spoil. These nations are asking Gog, or the leader of this alliance, are you coming to take resources? Are you coming to gather together a, an enslaved people to become slaves for you? That's what it means to take a prey. Are you coming to carry away silver and gold? Are you coming to conquer and to take away cattle and goods, to take a great spoil? It isn't about the question, it's about who's asking it. Sheba and Dedan represent modern day Saudi Arabia. The merchants of Tarshish. Tarshish was considered to be the land west in the Mediterranean, which would, have, which would put it in the area of Spain and Portugal. Tarshish. If they indeed represent Tarshish, would be those who were great explorers in the 13th, 14th, 15th centuries seaworthy explorers that went out. You remember Christopher Columbus discovering the new world. A new world would be made up of the young lions. The merchants of Tarshish would have begun in, in Great Britain and France. Because those were primarily uh, pagan nations. And from Great Britain, of course, came the United States. So what we're seeing here is the possibility that we're seeing the United States of America mentioned not as those protecting Israel, but as those questioning Russia and Iran and Turkey. Are you here to take spoil? And so... Did you come to enslave a people? Have you gathered your company to take whatever you can get from them, from Israel? Because that's all they want. I mean, these nations are asking questions but doing nothing to protect and support Israel. It is quite interesting that the Saudis are now in communication with the state of Israel, not as enemies, but as nations seeking to cooperate with each other. But the U.S. has been Israel's staunchest defender, but for how much longer? Now, let me just interject here that this is God's doing. This is the Lord's doing. But consider what's happening in the United States to bring us to that point where we will become inconsequential in, world, in the world stage at that time.
the things that are taking place in our own country, a civil war, or should I say an uncivil war, politically, is putting a stranglehold on this once powerful and sovereign nation under God. In fact, it's very hard to recognize where God is in that sense of a nation that says we're a nation under God. We don't want to offend anybody, therefore, you know, let's not use that phrase in the Pledge of Allegiance, that kind of thing. The partial shutdown that's going on today. The insane debate on the border wall calling for the impeachment of the president with, of course, no rational evidence for it. Just, they don't like him. They hate him. That's the bottom line. The desire to abolish the Electoral College, which, by the way, is undermining the Constitution of the United States. There would not be perfect and proper representation of all peoples without the Electoral College. That's Civics 101. But no, we lost ah, Trump derangement syndrome. Did you see that? Ah, it's your crybabies. What about newly sworn members of Congress with foul mouths? And anti-Semitic allegiances, just saying right out. Demonically based socialistic ideals. These things are just the spark make, uh, making us inconsequential in the Middle East and eventually weaken defending Israel at the consequential time. But understand, God is going to protect them. And God is going to keep them. God is going to show himself strong for his people. There are other critical issues to consider in our country, but in the world as well. As we aim toward the issue of, of uh, judgment that is coming in the seven-year period of tribulation. But there are critical issues to consider. Did you know that the number one cause of death around the world in 2018 was not cancer, it was abortion. Now, some people would argue and say, well, no, no, wait a minute. Now, abortion, you know, that's a medical procedure. It's a, uh, you know, uh, folks, they need to just shut up. Because the last time I checked, those babies in the wombs were human. And that's the taking of life. Forty-one point nine million deaths were due to abortion. Think about that. Forty-one point nine million deaths. Eight point two million people died of cancer. Look at the comparison. Five million died from smoking. One point seven million people died from HIV and AIDS. You add those up, it doesn't even come close to the babies that were killed. In 2018, in our own country, 23% of pregnancies were ended by abortion. And we haven't even gotten to the crux of the matter. The outright pursuit for globalization. Having a one-world government. A one-world religion. A one-world order. 
a new world order. And as I stated at the onset of this study, the church as a whole is not ready, nor is it seemingly interested in what is yet to come prophetically. But Jesus truly wanted us to know the times and the seasons so that we would be ready. My encouragement to you, church, is to get into God's word. Get on your knees and pray for this country. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And then live your lives as shining lights of the glory of Christ. In fact, be ready to give an answer to every man. Give an answer to every man of the hope that lies within us. We are the hopeful ones because we know Jesus is coming. In Matthew 16, verses 1 through 3, we're told in verse 1, the Pharisees also with the Sadducees came and tempting desired him that he should show them a sign from heaven. They were tempting Jesus. They wanted a sign, so they, they said, show us some sign. I will believe that you're the Messiah. So he answered and he said unto them, when it is evening you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and lowering. Oh, ye hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky, but can ye not discern the signs of the times? Now that was to the detractors of Jesus. What about to those who say that they're believers in Jesus Christ today? Can they say that they truly understand the signs of the times and the times of the signs? We should be like the men of, uh, of Issachar, the children of Issachar. In 1 Chronicles 12, verse 32, it says, And of the children of Issachar, which were men that had understanding of the times. They understood what was going on in the world. They understood what was going on, especially as it pertained to Israel, because it goes on to say, to know what Israel ought to do. The same thing should apply to us in the, in, the, in the church of Jesus Christ. We need to understand the times and to know what the church is supposed to do in these last days. Before Jesus comes for the church. Then the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 13 verses 11 through 14 he says in that knowing the time. That's emphasized here in, in the Greek. Knowing the time. That now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. I referred to the fact that earlier when, when, when Paul was teaching the, the church in Thessalonica. That he was telling them, listen, Jesus can come at any moment. This is what you need to know about the times in which we're living. That's why they were so understanding of prophetic issues. Even as a young church. Some people have been in the church for 50 years and have never opened their Bibles. Or they've been in the church for 50 years, opened their Bibles a few times, but they don't know what's happening in the world today. They have all kinds of opinions, but opinions are not going to save you. 
Now, it is uh, now is our salvation nearer than when we believe the night is far spent. The day is at hand. What day? The day of the Lord is at hand. But so also is the day of Christ. Are you ready for the coming of Jesus for the church? You need to be ready. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness. What are we doing in the dark? We're children of light, aren't we? And let us put on the armor of light then. Let us walk honestly as in the day. Not in rioting and drunkenness. Not in chambering and wantonness. Not in strife and envying. That's the way the world lives. In the dark. Actually they live in the light like that too. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. And then Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4, verses 7 through 11. He says, but the end of all things is at hand. That's a powerful statement. He said that almost 2,000 years ago. They were waiting for Jesus then. Because Jesus made it very clear. I'm coming again. Never told them when. No one knows the day or the hour, but you've got to be ready. So the church was ready then. At least they were told to be ready are we ready now I mentioned back on Wednesday that there are churches today that don't want to talk about prophecy because they, they believe Rick Warren more than they believe Jesus Rick Warren said that he, he, tried, to, he tried to interpret the, the fact that when Jesus uh, uh, told his disciples uh, you know, something to the effect about when they were asking him questions about his return, he said, those things are none of your business. That's how he interpreted it. Those things are none of your business. You want to know something? It is our business. And that comes from Jesus himself. When he gives us Matthew 24 that tells us of the end times, Mark 13 and Luke 21, the longest passages that deal with the coming of Jesus Christ. He wants us to know. The end of all things is at hand, Peter said. Be ye therefore sober. Serious, in other words. And watchful. Watch unto prayer. And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves. Let the love of Christ be at the center of your life. For charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. As every man has received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Keep living the Christian life. Keep living the life of faith. Keep trusting the Lord in every step that you take. As every man has received the gift, even so minister the same to one to another as the good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth. We're not to stop and go up top of a mountain with a white robe on and just say, okay, Jesus, I'm ready. Come and get me. No, we just keep living. If we were to know that Jesus was coming back tomorrow and today he, he speaks to your heart and tells you, plant a tree for me, what are you going to do? Well, why should I, Lord? I mean, you're coming tomorrow. How about be obedient? 
He has his reasons for you to plant a tree the day before he comes for you. We don't have to know. We just have to do. And we have to trust because he loves us. So let him do it as the, the ability which God give us that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Part one is over. Part two is soon to come. There's a lot to say. There's still a lot to learn. <laughs>